0: At Sassnacks, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week I'm doing my first edition of Droughtlander Book Club where I cover The Ruby Roach by Catherine Lowry Logan. So if you'd like to hear all about that book and what I thought, character analysis, plot points, writing style, etc., keep going. As always, you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, Castbox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to Follow the Sass Snack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander, Season 7, and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into the first edition of Droughtlander Book Club coming your way. an adventure. I did not realize (laughs) how much work goes into a book study. Um, I'm really excited to chat with you guys about it. But honestly, it's a lot. I mean, I brought my book just to show you guys. I don't know if you can see it. But these are all talking points (laughs) for today. So yeah, it's uh, I'm hoping to be out of here in under two hours. I don't know for sure how long it's going to take. I haven't done a trial run or anything. Hello out there in the universe. Hello, Catherine. Um, For those of you that don't know, I've been going back and forth with Catherine a little bit via email this week. So I've got a couple of little informational details to share with you guys. Just questions that I had while reading that I thought you guys might find interesting. So I went ahead and shot her a couple of questions. And then we've got some general book club questions that I went ahead and posted in the group today. Actually, two days ago, I think. Just general stuff about the story, what you liked, what you, at what point you just couldn't put it down, stuff like that. So my first couple of questions for you guys are just general things to get you talking. First question is... Did you race to the end of this book or was it more of a slow burn? Because I pretty much, the first time that I read it, went straight to the end right away. And it was one of those that after reading the Outlander books, I was so used to like 46-hour books that it was really refreshing to just have like a little 12 and a half, 13-hour book. So this was like my break, I guess, from the Outlander-verse. And it ended up being... More than I could have hoped. So thank you to Lori for recommending it to me. And thank you for Catherine for being so freaking awesome. And my second question is, how did your opinion of the book change as you read it? Were you thinking it was pretty much a generic love story? And then by the end, you're like, oh, my God, this world is so complex. Um, What were your opinions of the characters? Did they end up being deeper than you thought they would be? Yeah. What were your thoughts? Let me know. Liz is saying she listened on Audible and it only took her a couple of days. Yes, that was that was my situation as well. I was like in it to win it. Laura said started on Monday and finished on Thursday with the audiobook. <laughs> Brenda, not going to lie. I raced. Yes. So if you raced through it, do yourself a favor and go back and read it. Um, you don't have to pick it up and read it right away because I know there are like 10 other books in this series and you're probably wanting to find out what happens next. I was the same way, but. It really is good when you're like, not so focused on the plot that you aren't paying attention to the little things because I did that and I really appreciated the second read, even though I felt like I was stopping to take notes more than I was actually reading it. So first little bit, Catherine sent me this at the very beginning. I sent her like a book of questions. So she was such a good sport. But she says, this is just kind of some background. It was 1997 And I worked as a paralegal for almost 15 years and wanted to make one last try to get into law school, so I took the LSAT the first Saturday in October. On Monday, I sat down at my desk and said, what now? I've been talking about writing a book for 25 years, so I decided it was time to do it. On the 6th of October, I sat down and started writing without any real story in mind. I knew what it would start on a horse farm in Kentucky, and it would be a Western. I don't remember when the idea of the Oregon Trail evolved. I must have played the game before I wrote. I wrote The End on December 15th, and four days later, my husband committed suicide, and the book went into a drawer. About 10 years later, I decided to take online writing courses to learn how to write. Instead of starting a new book, I kept writing and rewriting the Ruby. The story didn't change much during those four years of learning how to develop a story, but I probably put a million words into the first chapter. I submitted to dozens of writing contests, and the first part of the story started to take shape. So... First off, this girl knows about tragedy, right? I feel like it's easy for authors to kind of dig into tragedy. That's what people like to read about, right? But it's a whole other thing when you know what it's like. And I feel like you can really understand that in her writing. Um, There's something so emotive about some of her passages, especially when we get into discussions about grief and loss, which I'll talk about later as kind of a, a major theme for the book. Also interesting that for 15 years or 25 years, excuse me, she wanted to write the a, a story, a book. And I feel like there are so many people out there so that want to write a book and just don't know where to start. So let this be a lesson. If you want to write a book, don't let it stop you. Like just start writing one day and it'll come out. It 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 always does. That's how I started. Granted, I've just got one little book. I don't have an 11-book series, but if you've got a story to tell, just tell it. There's going to be somebody to read it, I promise. It's not going to be a waste of time. So that's a little background on the Ruby brooch and how it came into existence. And one thing that I always find so fascinating about historical fiction is the setting. It's kind of my genre of choice. I absolutely love historical fiction and something that I've come to in the past couple of years is time travel romance, which kind of gives you the best of both worlds. You get the modern day stuff and you get stuff back in the past. You get a little history lesson as you go if it's done correctly. And what I appreciate is when authors go the extra mile to make sure that what they are portraying is actually an accurate representation of the world. Catherine actually went out and drove the Oregon Trail from St. Louis to Portland, I believe. Talk about dedication, but I actually feel like that's probably the best way to do it because you get an idea of your setting and, like, major milestones along the way, whether that be landmarks or major river crossings, how deep the ruts are in the road. I mean, that's things that you really can't portray to other people and explain unless you see it for yourself, I feel like. So kudos to her. Like, wow. And I get that. I mean... It's hard to write about something you've never seen, right? So I understand why she chose to do it, but trust me, there are a lot of authors out there that that wouldn't go that extra mile. So much appreciated for sure. So I'm going to talk about the setting a little bit, just because I feel like having a historical appreciation for what we're about to dive into is very key. Independence, Missouri, is where the story starts off, and it was actually the jumping off point for the Oregon Trail. As we go deeper into the 1850s, into the 1860s, there are more jumping off points and, and trail starting points further up into Illinois that were better for travelers going west from Indiana, Ohio, that kind of area. They didn't have to travel as far to get down to St. Louis to kind of start that adventure But St. Louis was a great point for a lot of people because also it was the jumping off point for the Santa Fe Trail, which went down into Texas and New Mexico. So whenever we're talking about independence, it became a boomtown. It was founded in 1827, and by the 1840s, it was a completely established little city out there in the middle of nowhere where... People would go to meet up with their wagon trains, stock up with their final provisions, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where this story really starts to take root. We obviously get a little bit of uh, introduction to Kit and Elliot and all of that in Lexington, which I think Lexington becomes much more central to the story as we move on throughout the series. But I won't talk too much about that today. But independence is a good place to start. And so from there, we start our journey west. And let me just say, I fell down a rabbit hole <laughs> with the Oregon Trail. I I remember playing the game in second grade. I feel like my teacher had like a little computer that we could play in our free time over in the corner and Oregon Trail was one of the games on there. So it's very fascinating. I feel like my life has come full circle, but I didn't really, I knew a little bit about the Oregon Trail and kind of, you know, how it was. A path along the way from the Midwest out to the West Coast and that a lot of people went (laughs) on the Oregon Trail. But that's really about all I knew. I'm going to tell you a little story, a historical story, about uh, a group of people called the Donner Party. And you have probably heard about them. They're mentioned in this book, which is kind of why I put like a little like tab when they're mentioned and... Kind of was like, I'll come back to it later. The first time I heard about the Donner Party was... I was watching this show on the Discovery Channel called Expedition Unknown. And they talked about the Donner Party a little bit. And so I remembered that in the back of my head. And then whenever I was doing this Oregon Trail research for this podcast slash Facebook Live, I went down down into the story a little bit. Obviously, what you hear about the Donner Party is that... They got stuck in the mountains of California and resorted to cannibalism. But what you don't hear about the Donner Party is all the details that led up to that, which is what I think is so significant when we're talking about this story. Whenever we hear about them in the story, it's Cullen talking to a group of people from the wagon train. And they're talking about potential routes to take because the Oregon Trail wasn't just a straightforward point A to point B trail. There was the main route, but then I saw it explained in my research as sort of a braid of trails. There was the main trail, and then there were several divergent points that came back onto the trail, um, the main trail at another point. Some of these were believed to be shortcuts. Some of them were chosen simply because they had better water sources or better grazing areas for hoofstock. So there were many different reasons. I mean, you see them in this this book, and I think that Catherine does it really well. You see John and Henry and Cullen talking about, well, we could go this way. It's shorter, but it's really hard going. There's not a lot of water. Or we could go this way, and it's a couple of days longer, but it's got grass for our cattle to eat and our oxen to eat, and it's got water for us. So do we want to add a couple of days to the trail or do we want to just kind of power through? And these were decisions, like valid decisions that people had to make. Um, It was already like a three-month, four-month journey. So when you're talking about adding days and weeks, it's a risk. And I think that that's something that is kind of lost on a lot of people. We see things so easily through the lens of our present circumstances and we're so used to just being able to take off in our air-conditioned cars and drive wherever not the case not the case and I'll talk about the dangers a little bit more here in a second but what happened with the Donner party was when you leave I'm, I'm putting myself back in the past so take a little journey with me when you leave independence it needs to be early enough in the year that you don't get stuck in the mountains during the snow But late enough in the year that you have grass and stuff for all of your livestock. The ideal time to leave is mid-April. And that's what time we see our characters leave to go west in the Ruby brooch. What happened with the Donner Party is kind of a perfect storm of messes. Firstly, for some unfathomable reason, they didn't leave Independence until May. Mid-May. Not even early May. Mid-May. And then they supposedly took one of these braided path shortcuts that was supposedly shorter. Which, sure, if it's a shortcut, it was deemed a shortcut, why not take it? Except for it wasn't a shortcut. And the guy that wrote this book hadn't even been out there, hadn't tested the trail. They ended up adding weeks to their already short schedule to go through the shortcut often cutting down trees and making a path themselves so they're already like four weeks behind schedule and then they add another three weeks to their schedule so they're beating feet they finally get back on the main path they get to the sierras and they get stuck early snowstorm so you've got them leaving late them taking a shortcut that wasn't really a shortcut and an early blizzard blocking all the paths. They get snowed in in the mountains and they don't get rescued until the springtime. And so when Cullen is talking to whoever he's talking about, I want to say that it was John and the Barretts. They say, well, we don't want to get stuck like the Donner Party because this only happened five years prior. So it's very recent in the history of the Oregon Trail. But yeah, they had to resort... To eating each other to survive. Um, not everybody did, and the people that did survive without cannibalism they subsisted on brewing leather and tree bark. They they killed all their pets, all their livestock. Did whatever they could. Survived in the Sierra Nevada mountains for like two months in tents and shanties. Fifteen of them went out looking for help. That was the first documented case of cannibalism. Most of the time, it was people that died from natural causes, but there was an instance where two Native American men that were along with them were actually murdered. So yeah, a a bit of a gruesome tale, but just like to kind of give you an idea of what we're dealing with on the Oregon Trail. It's not sunshine and roses, y'all. Not at all. So that's just how the weather can play in. And then you've got things like the wildlife on the trail. The biggest instance of wildlife that we get, we get a couple. We get the buffalo stampede, which people had never seen animals of this magnitude before. And you have to remember that this is before the fur trade kind of took over the West. People weren't sport hunting like they were. So buffalo were roaming the plains in the millions The millions. And they posed a very real danger for the people coming by. They're a natural, they're hoofstock, so they're naturally very uh, easily spooked. So this stampede that happened in the books, very legit. And um, Catherine actually told me when I was kind of emailing back and forth with her that, most of the experiences that happen while Kit and the others are on the Oregon Trail, she actually did pull from journals and first-hand accounts in her research that she came upon. So most of the stuff that does happen in this book um, actually did happen in real life. Not all at once, but are actually based on things that, that did happen. A little funny story about the Buffalo Stampede, which I'll just include here, because I couldn't find anywhere else to, like generally put it but i thought that it was it was funny and so i wanted to share it with you guys she said that for the stampede scene i went to a local gun shop to ask for advice it was during christmas rush and the store was packed i didn't know where to start a man at the checkout counter asked if he could help me and i told him i needed a gun that could kill the largest number of cows in the shortest amount of time (laughs) and coming from the midwest I could just imagine what happens next. She says, you could have heard a pin drop in the noisy store. I then told them I was a writer writing a stampede scene, and I had several men throwing out suggestions. So I could just imagine, like, you know, everybody's busy in the holiday rush, and they're not really paying attention to anybody else. And then just at the right time, this happens. And everybody just kind of is like, What? You're going to go out and shoot a bunch of cows? Like, what's happening? Anyway, so that's actually kind of kind of legit. So, bravo. But that's a funny story. I like that one. A different kind of wildlife that our travelers were frequently dealing with were snakes. You're traveling through multiple different kind of elevations and climates, so... You got a lot of different kinds of snakes, whether it's copperheads, cottonmouths, or several different kinds of rattlesnakes even. And this is something that happens to Kit. She gets bitten by a snake, lucks out, and it's a dry bite. But, no oh, thank you. I mean, I'm from Indiana, so I'm not afraid of the outdoors, but I hate snakes. And most of the snakes we have around here are perfectly harmless, which is kind of what my research said. Most of the snakes they would run into are harmless, but there were some very very deadly snakes that they ran into as well. I actually have all three of these where I live. Copperheads, cottonmouths, and rattlesnakes. Rattlesnakes, not so much, but everything else, wool. There was actually a firsthand account I ran into. It's by a woman named Velina Williams. This is an excerpt from her her journal. And she says, I was walking along, examining the ground, stooping to look into a hole. I found myself standing on a copperhead snake. He was coiled and my foot was across the coil so that the head was fortunately too nearly under my foot to injure me. (laughs) Nope. 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 No. Gross. And then you've got the big one. The big danger that we really think of um, with the Oregon Trail, which is traveler mortality. So there are are estimates on the low end that 4 to 6% of the people that traveled across the Oregon Trail actually died along the way, which doesn't sound like a lot until you look at the fact that that's between 12,000 and 24,000 people. And that's on the low end. Some experts say that it was probably more likely 10%. So that's freaking nuts, guys. Freaking nuts. And most diaries include accounts of all sorts of deaths, whether that be by firearm wild animals, drowning disease, or hypothermia. So these are all very real dangers, and we see some of these included in Catherine's writing of this story. The biggest killer of them all would be cholera, which it's a disease that is transmitted by contaminated water sources. So whenever you're talking about the Oregon Trail, there's not a lot of clean water sources. Most places are very common places along the trail for all of these people going west to get water on top of the fact that you have wild animals feeding out of these streams as well so you've got all kinds of nasty nasty bacteria in that water and they don't really have a choice but to drink it not that they really knew a lot about how disease was spread in that time anyway but yeah And so you've not only got cholera, but you've got um, diphtheria, which was the major killer of children. And then you've got, you know, just your everyday random diseases like typhoid, dysentery, malaria, food poisoning, scurvy, and alkalinity poisoning. Oh, and measles, mumps, and smallpox. Mm. (laughs) So, yeah, not, not a great situation. I honestly don't know how how these people ever got up the nerve to do this kind of thing and i get that it was a more dangerous time in general but that's a lot and so i think that you see people struggling with the safety of this. I mean, you've got that guy in Independence. I can't remember what his name was. But before they actually leave on the trail, Kit and Cullen are there standing in the street. And this guy comes up and he says, you know what, we thought about it. And I really just don't think that this is the best decision for my family. And we're going to back out. I don't blame them. Like, after reading all of this, I was kind of at first, I was like, eh, okay, well, he's probably older and it's not as easy on them, blah, blah, blah. And then after reading this, I'm like... I probably would have backed out too. Like, I feel like I'm I'm pretty brave. I don't know. Um, Definitely independent, but that's a little bit too much for me. Hmm. So one question that I asked Catherine along the way was, was there anything you came across in your research that you would have loved to include in the story but couldn't make it fit? And she says... I think I got it all, but I would love to rewrite the story, not to change the basic story, but to improve my writing. If I rewrote it, the story would probably be at least 100 pages longer so I could include more material. And I get that. As an author, you're never, I feel you're never fully satisfied with your story. Like it could be the best version of itself that you could put out there, but at the end of the day, you're still not 100% happy with it. But I actually think that this was a fantastic first novel. And here here's why. <laughs> Let me get my litany of examples. I feel like she does a great job with her world building. She's got some really powerfully descriptive moments. She really goes in with the senses and tries to use those. And one great example of that was when Kit first arrives in Independence. She describes the smell, which is something that... As writers, we usually forget about that sense unless it's something like really, really remarkable. I feel like most writers have a tendency to go with what we see because that's our most powerful sense and that's kind of dominant. But it's really about experiencing the world as a whole. When Kit first arrives at Independence, she describes the smell of garbage, manure and burnt coffee all over the lovely sound of the clang of a blacksmith's hammer. And I just really like that. Like, it really throws you right in to the world that you're dealing with. So she does that all over the place, whether it's Kit sitting by the river and talking about, you know, the wildflowers and um, the way that the river looks in the moonlight and all of that. She's very good at setting. And that's what I really... I have to have that as a reader to keep me engaged. I have to feel like... I know where I am in time, and it's not like somebody telling me a story, I guess. I have to I have to put my, be able to put myself in it. One of the other ways, and this is my favorite, favorite, is her character work. At the very beginning, we get a description of Elliot. It says, Elliot was visible through the front door sidelight, standing on the porch, wearing a green barber jacket and khakis with the usual knife-edge press. His aviators were tucked into the collar of his polo shirt, a McLena farm ball cap covered all but the sides of his freshly barbered hair. I think that descriptions like this tell you a lot more about a character than what's actually like physically on the page. If you look at the descriptors that she uses, this tells you a lot about Elliot's personality actually. You've got a green barber jacket and khakis, which kind of tells you that he's a little bit uppity, like a little bit preppy, and that's all right, but Barber, like, mm, fancy. <laughs> and then you've got the usual knife edge press, which tells you more so about um, he's very particular about how he likes things. His aviators were tucked in the collar of his polo shirt. And when I think of aviators, I think pilots, like, I think cool guy, ladies man. And then you've got the McClinna farm ball cap. Covered all but the sides of his freshly barbered hair. So he's very particular about his appearance. And so that tells me that he's very much a ladies' man. Without even knowing that about him. I mean, we do hear about that later in the book. But you get that impression of him just from this initial description that Kit gives from her point of view. All thrown together with the McLenna Farm ball cap, which tells you that he's very comfortable. And that's like probably the most casual form of Elliot you're going to get is when he's at McLenna Farm. (laughs) Veronica says, Elliot's mine. I'll fight you all. (laughs) He's a sweetie. And I love so, so much, not necessarily where this story ends, but his arc overall. If you haven't had a chance to read further into the series, definitely do that. Just saying. So that initial description of Elliot is what really intrigued me. Then you get um, instances like where Kit and Cullen meet for the first time. It's a very significant point in our story. It gives you a fantastic representation of who our characters are because it shows what Cullen's interested in. Speaking of ladies, man, he's definitely what was it? There was a a line, and I was immediately intrigued. He says something about virgin brides and widows, and the former didn't interest him, and the latter uh, lavishly entertained him. And I was like, oh boy. (laughs) Oh boy. So when Kit and Cullen meet for the first time, you get it from both of their perspectives. And I felt like this was a very, very interesting technique because we're getting to know our characters underneath, but we're also furthering the plot as well. We understand what they notice about one another, whether that's their eyes, how tall they are, the way that um, Kit makes a, has a line about the way that Cullen's long body unfolds as he stands up from his chair. Cullen remarks about, I think he he says a line about... Um, The honey color of Kit's hair and those green eyes with the gold flakes, how she smells. These are all things that that they notice about one another. But I found that it was so interesting to see both points of view because Kit is very, very focused on her goal of finding a wagon train to join up with and is very feisty about it. I mean, she doesn't like being told no. So I think that it gives Cullen a pretty good view of what he's in for by helping her out. He knows what he's getting into. I don't think he fully knows, but I definitely feel like he's clouded by all that lust he's got going on for this widow anyway. And then you've got like such tiny little things that you really only pick up on with a second read. You've got the fact that Cullen only whistles around Kit. And I think that's because that's the only place that he feels comfortable enough and himself enough to kind of let his guard down that much, which I really find beautiful. And then you've got my favorite choice. And this is something that I have noticed across all of her books. And I really, really love it. She intentionally, you can tell, she definitely puts effort into making sure that every single one of her characters is identifiably different in how she tells the story, in the little things, like the metaphors and similes that these characters uses, whether it's comparing the sound of someone's voice to an aria... One thing that I noticed later on in the series, and this is how I can tell you that she does it across each book, is there's a character later on in the series that baseball is very important to them. And instead of comparing something to music like Kit or Cullen would, she compares it to um, a play in baseball or the, uh, the way a character or a player would approach a certain play or whatever. It's really cool. And I noticed that she does it a lot here with Kit and Cullen, especially with music. It's kind of the thing that really draws them together. The only thing that I did notice, and I only noticed this because I was talking to one of my friends about it, who is actually a a professional musician. She said that it is kind of like a little bit unrealistic that they would have such a catalog of classical composers just because they're they were so prolific in their work and there are so many different songs i mean i think it's cool and apparently there are those people out there that do have that kind of knowledge but most of them are like autistic or have um personality disorders of some sort but i think it's cool honestly I think it's fun that they can just play these games with each other about humming tunes and seeing if they can guess the other, uh, what the other's humming. And I think it's so adorable, Cullen's reaction to Kit's iPod on their wedding night. So cute. So cute. Um, I can just imagine Kit's joy at being able to give him a little piece of the future that would just blow his mind. Like, it, it must have been great. So I'll take a little bit of a break from the whole writing of it, and we're going to get deep into some characters. Kit is our main character, and she... <laughs> I love her. Don't get me wrong. Um, and I know that she's got a lot going on, but sometimes she drives me bonkers with her reckless behavior. She's very rash, and I feel like that's part of her arc over the course of the story. It's definitely like she's going through a lot of crap when we first meet her, and by the end, I feel like she's she's at peace with who she is again. I feel like it was a good arc for her. I feel like that's the mark of a good character when you can be frustrated at them, but still love them. You know? (laughs) A couple of things about Kit that I feel like are background information, but still very critical to the plot. The attack with Wayne. Whenever she was almost raped and Elliot was almost killed by Wayne, that really impacted her and who she is. Her decisions moving forward, learning to defend herself and learning karate and mixed martial arts. It's very key to the story as a whole, but I feel like also to herself because there's also a little bit of an issue with the fact that she feels so confident in being able to defend herself because whenever we get to the to the 19th century in 1852... There are instances where she is a bit reckless in her decisions because I feel like she's a bit overconfident in her ability to protect and defend herself. But I love that the first time that we hear about the attack is when Kit tells Cullen. I mean, we get little glimpses of it here and there, and we know that something is going on, but we're not fully sure what happened. Whenever she first tells Cullen what happened, it's very interesting because she's bringing her walls down. And it's something that she couldn't even bring herself to think about fully herself. So we as the reader don't even know what happened, which is what I find interesting about first person. You can play with it a lot in that respect as far as what you tell a reader, when you tell it, and what that says about that particular character. So Kit was going through a lot, so much so with her grief and her loss and her PTSD over this attack, that she really didn't even think about it. And I feel like especially where that comes into play is being intimate with someone. And that was part of the reason that her and Scott never had sex, because she couldn't. She was still very scarred by what happened uh, with Wayne. And that's... I can't even imagine trying to bring yourself to be intimate with a partner after such a horrific experience. And that's why I think that when she decides to be intimate with Cullen, that says so much because after that experience, she decides to go home. I don't know. I I don't know. (laughs) She decides to go home and she says, That basically, she found the man that she loves, but she doesn't belong there, but at least she had this night. And for Cullen, that night was game-changing on a whole other level, and it breaks his heart a little bit, but I feel like that transfer of what Kit is going through into Cullen's emotions just a little bit, it brings them closer together, even if it is just a completely terrible situation, and I don't agree with Kit's actions. I don't agree with her mindset, but also I kind of do because she didn't plan on staying in the 19th century and who would want to stay in the 19th century with all of their diseases and rough way of living and all of that. But also that she felt comfortable enough with Cullen to be intimate with him, but not enough to want to stay with him. It's just a little confusing. It's a little confusing for me as a viewer or reader. I'm not going to lie. Anyway, so you've got the attack, and then the accident is the second major thing that happens that kind of informs who Kit's character is as a whole. And it also happens before we actually meet her. I think that the accident perhaps informs Kit's actions, especially her reckless behavior, a bit more than the attack does in that she not only lost her parents in this accident and is grieving over them and trying to find her way in the world without them, at a very young age, she's like 24, 25, but also Scott dying in her arms is enough to kind of send her spiraling a little bit, I think. That's really intense. I can't imagine putting myself in her position and watching the man that I love and I'm thinking about marrying die in my arms as a paramedic your job is to save people from terrible things like this and she's very badly injured herself I mean she's got a piece of fence stuck in her neck yeah there's nothing that she really could have done but feeling that sense of responsibility and knowing that it's her job to help people and she can't help the one person that it matters the most to help in that moment that does something to you And then losing that person, watching them die in your arms, dealing with the grief over their loss on top of the guilt of not being able to help them. And then you're thrown into a situation on the Oregon Trail where there are people dying and being in danger left and right. And I think Kit almost feels like a responsibility or like that she owes it to humanity at large to save as many people as she can to make up for the fact that she couldn't save Scott. And while that doesn't really... Makes sense on a rational emotional level it really is it's huge and I think that there's a scene I can't remember I'm gonna try to find it because I put the quote down when Kit is telling Cullen what happened to Scott and how guilty she feels about it He tells her, you've set yourself against an impossible standard and perceive anything less as failure. You didn't fail. You did what only you could do. Provide comfort and hope during the last moments of his life. You have to let it go. His death was no your fault. I think that's, it's advice that she hasn't heard from anyone. I think everyone's so focused on helping her through her grief that they're not actually looking at the underlying causes of why she feels the way that she does. They know that she suffered an immense loss and that she lost the three people most to her in the world. But they're not looking at what deep down she feels, like that sense of responsibility and conflict that is really troubling her and driving some of these rash and irresponsible behaviors because she's trying to make up for that failure on an internal level. And I think hearing it from Cullen, who has been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, is probably the best thing that could have happened for Kit in that moment because Cullen also feels an extreme amount of guilt for what happened with Kristen. And I think... Again, going back to character building, it's very important when you're writing a love story to have characters that have similar experiences when you're trying to, A, cross a divide. I mean, Kit and Cullen definitely have their differences, but also you're trying to... You have to create adversity and flaws in your character in order to draw people in because readers are drawn to flaws in characters and conflict in a story and if you don't have that it makes it pretty cookie cutter and oversimplifies things I feel like it's like and they lived happily ever after and yes that's a mark of a romance of a romance genre right every book ends that way but it's the journey along that way that keeps people reading and so when you have intriguing characters like this It really helps to keep the reader engaged, but it also makes for some really touching moments. And I think that that is specifically true in Cullen helping Kit through her grief. Because it's easy for someone to sit there and be like, oh, you'll be okay. We're going to get you through this. You'll get past your grief. And I saw a fantastic TED Talk the other day that says, you don't get past your grief. You don't move on. You learn to deal with it, and you grow around it. And I feel like that's something that Cullen has done so far on past the death of his sister. I mean, it's been like 20 years, 15, 20 years probably, since his sister died, and he still holds on to a lot of guilt over not being able to save her, just like Kit does with not being able to save Scott. But it's having that been-there-done-there mentality. And granted, he's still grieving he still doesn't feel 100% whole. And I don't know that whenever you suffer a loss like that, you ever feel whole again, but you definitely, like I said, learn to grow around it. They're both functional, but Kit's at a much more raw stage in her grief, still has that, that blame stage going on. And I think it's only when Kit and Cullen find each other that they can really start to heal and understand that... When they lean on each other and when they they support each other, that's when they're at their strongest. And that's when I feel like they have a sense of confidence in each other, not maybe in the in themselves, like they're still themselves, but that they can move on. And as long as they have each other, that's really all they need. Like it's Kit and Cullen against the world almost because, I mean, Kit has to have a certain amount of confidence (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to leave the 21st century and go back to to Cullen. so um, And Cullen, vice versa, was willing to go with Kit to the 21st century if he had to because he just didn't want to be without her. I feel like you have to have a special bond to be able to be willing to make those sacrifices for your significant other, for sure. So those are things that happen to Kit before we meet her. The attack and the accident. Then we move on to actually when we do meet her. So she's already dealing with all of this stuff. A lot of times when we meet characters in the Celtic brooch universe, and if you haven't read past the first book, I'll just educate you now. Our characters are often damaged in a sort of way or like emotionally unavailable. Let's put it that way. They're often emotionally unavailable for one reason or another because of something that has happened to them before the story started. And part of the story is a mystery element in that We're finding out why they are the way they are. Like, they're just this little, like, fortune cookie. We're breaking open and seeing what's inside. (laughs) So for Kit, the first movement of this story is she's already on her knees because terrible things have already happened to her. And then she finds out that her parents lied to her her whole life and that she's not actually the daughter of Sean and Mary McClenna. She was adopted, quote-unquote, more like orphaned and found in a Moses basket on the front porch. But nonetheless, she's not who she's been taught to be her entire life. At least that's how she feels. I mean, yes, there's the whole argument of nature versus nurture. And she was raised as the daughter of Sean and Mary McLennan. So technically, yes, that's who she is. I think she comes to understand that over time. But there's a huge piece of her that is missing, she feels like, because she doesn't know her biological identity. And so I have a question for you. This is This is my first of the questions that I did not post. If your child was adopted... Would you be honest with them about their true heritage or choose to keep it a secret? What do you think? Do you think that Sean and Mary made the right decision in not telling her? And Elliot. Elliot was complicit in this, which is a whole other story, I feel like. But I feel like what's key to remember is these two men, probably in their 30s, 20s or 30s, found baby Kit on the porch, just all by herself, wrapped in a bloody shawl. Mary wasn't around at this time yet, and they decided to take this this wee baby girl in and raise her. And I just find this so, so wonderful. Like, this really tells you how big of a heart Sean and Elliot both have to just say, you know what? They could have easily called the fire department and said, hey, we found this baby on our porch. We don't know where she came from. But no, they took her in and they made her their own. Mary didn't come into the picture until Sean started kind of looking into where Kit came from and realized that, oh, this brooch has magical properties and it goes back in time. This is kind of where the idea of the brooch lore comes into effect and and they talk about it later in the story, so I probably will talk about it later when I get to that section of my outline. There's the idea that Kit came forward in time to Sean and Mary, not necessarily because that's, like, where she personally was supposed to end up, but because she was acting as a, like, as a conduit and giving the brooch to Sean so that he could go back and find Mary, which was his true soulmate. I think that once you accept as a reader that the brooches are kind of beyond our comprehension and that everything happens for a reason with the brooches, this universe just... You know what? Just go with the flow. <laughs> um, The brooches... Make things the way that they should be and bring people together that should be together. So even though Kit didn't find her soulmates in the 21st century, she did find the family that she was supposed to be with and brought the brooch to Sean so that he could find his soulmate. So Kit really just took a big, long 24-year detour into uh, the modern times so that Sean could find Mary, which is just beautiful. I love the idea of bringing soulmates together. That's... I can totally see why this is addicting, you know, <laughs> because every it's all idealized. Like there every every character goes through their trials and tribulations. But at the end of the day, like all you want is love. All you need is love. <laughs> Alrighty, what are you guys saying about what you think on adoption? Looks like most people are saying they would be honest Liz Viddler says, tell them, but no earlier than eight. They need to be old enough to understand. Lori said, I would definitely be honest. Kathy, I would be honest with them, age appropriate as they grow. Connie Fitzgerald McGee says, it annoys me when characters are not honest. Drives me crazy, but I understand it's all part of the story. I'm the same way, Connie. Like when I see dishonesty happening as Like, you just know it's going to cause problems later. You're like, no, just tell them the truth. Yeah, I get that for sure. (laughs) Angela says, I think in this situation it was best with all the difficult crap to explain. I think she needed to be older to grasp it all. I agree. I think that there's no true way that you could look a small child in the face and be like, hey, we found you in a basket on the front porch when you were a couple months old and we just took you and raised you as our own. You're welcome. And, like, expect that to go over well when they inevitably go to school and tell their friends. (laughs) Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that Elliot was particularly was between a rock and a hard place because he didn't have kids. So Kit was very much his daughter in a lot of respects. And... It wasn't his decision to make in whether they told Kit or didn't tell Kit. And he was just stuck with this secret kind of on the outskirts, knowing her true like not her identity, but like the story, her story and not being able to say anything about it. So I feel particularly bad for him because then after Sean and Mary die and Kit finds out the truth, Elliot is really just her punching bag. It sucks how is he supposed to defend himself? Because he couldn't justify telling her, but I think in a lot of ways he couldn't justify not telling her either. Um, he just knew it wasn't his place. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting to say the least, but in the end it's Kit's desire to find out who she is that drives her to the past. And she thinks she'll find answers on the Oregon trail because of Francis Barrett's, journal that she found and the portrait that she found of her father in the stuff that Sean kept you know including her shawl and all this stuff she decides to go back in time and I think it's so poetic so poetic I love this Um, Because I am a sucker for anything like this. That Kit and Cullen were always meant to be together. They were pledged to each other as children because their mothers were friends. I love the fact that when all is said and done and Kit is reflecting back on it at the end of the story. She says that she doesn't know for sure that her and Cullen would have been as happy as they are if she had always stayed in the past, because she wouldn't have been the woman that she is without that experience. She wouldn't be as educated as she is. She wouldn't be as strong and fiery and independent, probably, because she wouldn't have been raised in that environment. All in all, the brooch probably did have a reason for sending Kit as far forward as it did, whether that was to bring Sean and Mary together or whether that was to make Kit the woman that she is so that she could be that woman for Cullen, which is who he needed, He needs someone intelligent that can challenge him and can have educated discourse with him. So I find that very interesting. And then at the end of the day, Kit ends up getting answers anyway. It's just definitely not in the way that anybody expected. She doesn't get answers on the Oregon Trail as far as who she is biologically. But she gets answers on the Oregon Trail as to who she is emotionally spiritually. She heals a lot from her past traumas through the people that she meets and the situations that she undergoes. She gets answers to who this Kit McClenna is without the banner of McClenna hanging over her head. And I think that that is, that's really something because I think that everybody goes through an identity crisis at some point in their lives, perhaps not on this scale, but it's definitely a who am I really moment because Kit had been not trained, but like informed all her life by the McLenna family and the McLenna family traditions and the McLenna farm and running the farm and knowing things about horses. And she grew up on the social scene of Lexington and Louisville and the horse racing industry. And she's a bit of a socialite. So that I think was her identity for a long time. And then whenever that got stripped away, she got to rebuild herself in a lot of respects and find the values that Sean and Mary really instilled in her underneath all of that. So it's very intriguing, for sure. One of Kit's qualities that I feel like got lost a little bit after all of her trauma was her artistic streak. It's something that she rediscovers on the trail. She starts out in just... Drawing sketches and caricatures of Cullen and um, the Barretts. And then there's this moment where she's sitting by the river. She kind of loses herself and goes into the zone, as she calls it, and closes her mind off to all the outside world and is, isn't is really thinking about what she's drawing. And that's when the magic really starts to happen, in my opinion, because Her internal turmoil and her emotions are flooding out onto the page into this very telling picture that she's created. It's a idyllic, beautiful picture on one side with birds chirping and a calm river. And then in the middle, there's a bridge that's half rotted on one side and perfectly fine on the other and on the on the side of the painting with the half-rotted bridge, everything's kind of just bolted and dying, and the, the river has rapids and everything. And I think that this really portrays the two sides of Kit. You've got the side that she puts onto the world, and you've got the side that she feels inside. So when you look at it, it even surprises her. I don't think that she realizes kind of... How deep she is, if that makes sense. And I love that she uses art as a platform to kind of get that out, get that angst out and that inner conflict out and put it on the page. And a lot of times when that happens, you can kind of see what your issues are. It's really therapeutic in a way. And then I love that there's something that Cullen loves about her as well. And he describes the way that she draws in music form, because he sees the world through the lens of music. And he says, you sketch fine lines as if you're plucking stringed instruments. Broader lines have the rumble of percussion. The full orchestra plays between the chin and the brow. You're both composer and conductor. And it's brilliant. I love that. Like. He finds her so beautiful, especially when she's expressing her emotion through art. He loves just watching her draw. And so this that particular quote is from when they go and she's doing the the sketches of the men that attack the wagon train and kill all of those people and um, take all their money. So she's going to do those sketches. And he kind of gets lost in watching her. I mean, she, they're there for like hours. And she's just drawn away and he's watching her. And I find that that are really touching moment. There's another moment where Kit is drawing again, and Cullen makes a comment about how the river is treacherous and that there's a very strong current. And she talks about how she just wants to, to show the beauty of it, not the danger underneath. And I find that such a telling juxtaposition to her initial drawing that we get with the half and half the The beautiful meeting the grotesque, then all of a sudden, by the the f- turning point of the story when she's very happy with Colin and they're married and they're continuing on their their journey, and she just wants to draw what's beautiful. She's at a place in her life where she actually feels like she can accept the beautiful things in life again and not feel this tugging weight dragging her down below the surface. Every time she tries to appreciate something because she's just suffering this immeasurable grief inside. And so then, of course, all hell breaks loose. Not far after that, but it's in that scene that she talks about how her risk-taking days are over. It's so interesting. I believe in that scene she's just discovered that she's pregnant and she's happy with Cullen and she's just at a point in her life where she doesn't need to prove anything to anybody anymore. So the overall arc of her as a woman in this story is phenomenal to me, honestly. That she goes from such a emotional wreck, honestly, hot off the heels of the loss of her boyfriend and her parents and learning she was adopted and that she's really from the 19th century, whatever it is, and then all of a sudden, over the course of this story, she becomes... A full, whole, robust character that really learns, like, relearns, I guess, what the meaning of life is and having an appreciation for that and learning to love again and expanding that love into a family with her pregnancy and the birth of her son, discovering her family, a new family in Sean the First and Thomas and Bram and her father. It is really just a beautiful story overall. I really loved it. And that's just Kit. And then we've got Cullen, who, equally frustrating sometimes. I know I said that that Kit can be really frustrating, but I feel like Cullen can also be frustrating. Not for no reason. Like, he definitely has his reasons for being the way that he is most of the time. I know I touched about the death of his sister and that he really does hold on to a, a lot of grief and sense of failure over not being able to protect her. And so much like Kit feels guilt for not being able to save Scott because she's a paramedic and that's her job, Cullen feels a sense of failure because he wasn't able to protect his sister. And as a 19th century man, that was often their view on the world, that that was their purpose. They're supposed to be able to protect the ones that they care about, especially women. And so we see that much like we see Kit's guilt and self-blame over not being able to save Scott kind of projected onto the way that she goes about business in the 18th century in jumping into the Kansas River to save that boy using all of her 20th century or 21st century medicine on Francis and Cullen. We see those risks being taken because she blames herself for Scott, but we see Cullen's overbearing protectiveness and need to protect Kit at all costs and, like, following her around and, like, getting so mad when she does things that he can't control. That's all because he's scared to death that he's going to lose her like he did with Kristen, and he even says in the story that Kristen took more risks than were necessary and she was always kind of reckless And so I think that Cullen sees a lot of Kristen in Kit, and he's just so terrified that something is going to happen to her because she takes an unnecessary risk, and that he feels like he can do something to protect her, and instead, like, she's not letting him, and I think that's very frustrating to him, but also on the other side of it, he's very frustrated because he can't predict what she's going to do and he can't control her and I think that's really maddening for him at first and you know speaking of character arcs that's a pretty fantastic one for him as well because he goes almost from this very misogynistic viewpoint of what an idea a very 19th century idea of what women can do and he goes all the way to the other side of it by fully appreciating Kit and who she is I think we see that portrayed perfectly in him buying her the horse at the end of the book, because it's probably way too much horse than most men would consider buying their wives in the 19th century, because women were supposed to have these really laid back, you know, and they were supposed to ride side saddle and blah, blah, blah. And here comes Kit, who can actually ride a full-blown 21st century thoroughbred like nobody's business. That's behavior that Cullen finds reckless, but he also knows that she can handle it. She knows what she's doing and it's okay. He doesn't have to protect her from everything. It's it's really beautiful. I love it. So something else about Cullen that I think informs his character a lot is how um, intelligent he is. He attended Harvard Law along with his best friend Bram. Before we even know that he's a lawyer and that he attended Harvard Law, we see it coming out in his character in the way that he negotiates the contract between Kit and the Barretts. We see Cullen's ability to negotiate contracts, answer questions, and he has a very imposing presence. He's not used to not getting answers and people keeping secrets from him. And so this all kind of rolls into his profession because he values honesty above all else. And just based on Kit's situation, she inherently can't be honest. Like, could you imagine just walking onto a street in Independence, Missouri in 1852 and being like, hey, everybody, I'm a time traveler from 2012. Nice to meet you. Obviously, that's not going to happen. And Kit has her reasons for not telling the truth. I mean, obviously, I think she's she's pretty reckless in her use of medical supplies and technology from the 21st century because... I don't really understand how you can you can go about using all of these things and then expect to not ever have a conversation ever to those around you about where you got these things and why you use them and like where you came from. But anyway, as far as Cullen's honesty, he can't stand liars. And there is a quote where he's thinking he had seen innocent men hanged and guilty men go free all because of lies. He had no tolerance for liars. Kit's secret may not be life and death, but I think seeing things like that really gives Cullen a deeper appreciation for the need for honesty. And so that's just how he goes about life. He's very bluntly honest sometimes, but you never have to worry about him lying to your face. Yes, Lori says she wears Victoria's Secret. I know! I'm like, why on earth, girl, are you wearing a thong and a demi-bra from Victoria's Secret in the 19th century? Like, what the... (laughs) At what point was that a good decision? I mean, Cullen finds it very arousing. (laughs) I'm sure he does. Something you can't even get in brothels in 1852. So... Collins has a profound appreciation for honesty in all shapes and forms and I feel like after Kit becomes honest with him finally it definitely brings them closer together after he gets past the initial shock of it. I'm not going to stand here and say that he just took it so well and in his stride and yeah, it everything was great. Like no, he definitely did not and but I think he definitely gets used to it faster than a lot of people would have. And I think that all goes back to his tough exterior. After Kit tells him where she came from and why she's there, he basically tells her she needs to pack up and get out. As soon as Francis is safe, you need to leave. I feel like having a reaction like that is probably not best placed to foster an honest relationship with someone. Um... And we come to these situations with Kit and Cullen time and again where Kit's afraid to be honest. Kit doesn't want to reveal her real emotions. And then she finally gets up the nerve to do it. She tells Cullen. He freaks out, gets mad, gets upset, and then storms off, or one of them storms off, and we take two or three steps back in their relationship. So the story is very much... As much as it's about their their romantic interest in one another, it's also about them growing as people and learning to communicate. <laughs> so that's great. But when Kit finally does tell Cullen where she came from, and that she's a time traveler, he doesn't really take it so well. So my question to you is this. Why is Cullen really mad at Kit when she tells him the truth? Is it because she lied again, or because she's other she's not from the 19th century and she doesn't belong there and he can't understand her is that why he's mad or is it because she lied to him again connie says i love that part as she spends time with francis knowing it was her journal she was using as her guide yes and i think that that was a little bit of a shock for kit i mean honestly i think it was a shock (laughs) for me that this journal that supposedly drew kit back to the past is actually written by this little girl was very, very interesting. I did not see that coming, for sure. And Kit's relationship to the Barretts is just... It's on a whole other level. It really gives me all the warm and fuzzies. I love the Barretts. Every single one of them, whether it's John or Sarah Francis, Elizabeth, Adam, you name it. Liz thinks that Cullen's mad because she lied, and he can't handle lies at all. I think it's a little bit of both. Oh, Angela says that another way that you can tell Cullen is a lawyer is because of the way he discusses things he traps people through questioning. Yeah, he really does. He he likes to back people into a corner, and you can definitely see that in his discourse. He's definitely used to getting answers, and when he backs somebody into a corner or traps them into an answer and they're evasive, it really pisses him off. Like, really pisses him off. Yeah, I love him, though. He's such an alpha male. I love him. Connie says, I think it's a part of both but it's likely because of his own frustration and not being able to truly understand who Kit is. I do think that it's a bit of both. I think it's that she's not being honest with him, but I also think that it's because he can't fully wrap his head around it. Because when Kit tells him that she's not really a widow and that she's a virgin and all of this comes out, you're in his his head and he makes a comment and he says, The only reason you would lie about something like that is if there was a bigger secret in need of protecting. So immediately he already knows that she's got another secret that she's keeping. He has no clue what that is, but he knows that she's not being honest. So I think that most of it is that he can't wrap his head around the fact that she's a time traveler. And I think that Probably part of it is that he thinks that she's lying to him about that. I don't think that he fully realizes that she's being honest with him in that moment for a whole other set of reasons. But also that whenever you try to wrap your head around something like that, even though he is Scottish and he does come from a Celtic background, and he even admits that he thought that her brooch was probably magical, it's a whole other can of worms, I feel like, trying to comprehend something like that actually happening it's like it's like ghosts right for centuries there have been the stories of what happens when you die and everybody knows that you die and there have been stories out there of ghosts and you hear ghost stories around halloween there are tons of shows on tv about ghosts but when you actually see a ghost it's really hard for your mind to wrap around that idea So, and I think it's the same way with anything supernatural. You're just, you're floundering. And I think for Cullen, he doesn't like feeling that way. He likes to have his feet soundly on solid ground. He doesn't like not being completely comfortable with what's in front of him. Sexism in the 19th century is is huge. I feel like you're not accurately describing 19th century life, 18th century life, however far back you want to go, pretty much prior to late 20th century. You're not accurately portraying historical fiction if you don't include misogyny on some level. And I think that that is very much part of Cullen's arc as a character is coming to understand, like I said, that women can be strong and independent and assertive, just like a man. And I think part of His arc is learning to love Kit despite that. And I asked Catherine if she agreed with me. And she said she did agree. And I also asked, do you find it difficult to authentically portray the misogyny of an earlier time in some of your male leads? Because women are undoubtedly the bigger audience of historical romance or time travel romance, all of those. So how do you create... A male lead that's desirable to a woman reading something in the twenty first century, when you're dealing with a man, if you're if you're creating a realistic man, you're dealing with a man who's used to women being meek and obedient and doing what their husband wants, and they're they're the man in the relationship making all of the decisions, and nobody does anything without his permission, et cetera, et cetera. How do you create a man like that? This is something that I've thought in my head over and over. So that's why I asked Catherine about it. And she said that she always tries to find a workaround for it, like a payoff to it, I guess. And she says that in this particular instance, Kit took the misogyny of men in the 19th century and used that to teach the little girls what women were capable of accomplishing. And she, I love that she's like, I'm just making little suffragettes out of the Barrett girls because I do feel like it's important for young girls to understand that they can be more than this little box that they're being shoved into. And uh, so I love that that was kind of her choice to take the misogyny and work with it and create it as a plot point and to show Cullen also learning as a whole that it's okay. (laughs) You don't have to be this strong alpha male and like always getting your way and like Kit can be who she is and that's that's part of their love story, I feel like. So I thought that was that was very interesting. Another thing about Cullen that gets in the way is the arranged marriage to Abigail. I think Cullen is very much a traditionalist. He does believe in some advanced things, modern or forward-thinking things. He believes in education for everyone, social rights, I feel like. But when it comes to his own personal life, he's kind of been left out to hang as far as love is concerned. And at this point, I think, you know, he's almost 30 and he's probably thinking he needs to settle down and provide his father with that grandson that he's been wanting is how he words it. And that opportunity comes in the form of Abigail Phillips, who is the daughter of his business partner out in San Francisco. I don't think that it's Cullen's, I wouldn't say that it's his first choice. I would say that It's the opportunity that's been presented to him and that he doesn't really see a problem with it until he finds Kit. And then it becomes a problem because he found someone that he really wants to be with, but he's socially and morally obligated to marry this woman that he's basically engaged to. Not quite engaged to, but is pledged to. Let's put it that way. It's been arranged and he's on his way to get her. Her death definitely simplifies the plot like a million times. I'm trying to figure out how Bram knew that Abigail was dead before Cullen knew. That kind of blows my mind. And so this leads me to another plot question. Should Bram have told Cullen about Abigail sooner? And if he had, how do you think that would have changed things? Because I think personally, like, Bram was probably right. Cullen would have taken off and gone to California and wanted to give his condolences to her father and he wouldn't have stayed and built that relationship with kit The bram wanted him to bram was in such a such a bad position like this is one of those those situations where I, like connie was saying earlier dishonesty when you see it happening and you know it's gonna gonna affect things later you're like no you need to be honest This was one of those times where, honestly, like, the moral ambiguity of this situation, I was like, I don't know. I don't know what he should do. And I love that he actually talks to Kit about it. And we'll talk about it a little bit later. But basically gets permission for his moral ambiguity, which I find hilarious. I think... I'm glad that Bram didn't say anything earlier, I guess, um, is where I come down on that. Because I do think that we would have had a very different story. I think that because of the nature of the brooches and because Colin and Kit are celestial, like, out there in the universe soulmates, meant to find each other, they would have found their way back to each other eventually. But it would have taken a heck of a lot longer. I don't know if Kit would have stuck around for that, to be honest. So the last aspect of Colin that I kind of want to touch on before we, we move on to our next topic of conversation. He's very much a natural leader, which I think is, is kind of what draws me to him as a character. I like those kind of qualities in a character, in a man even, in a woman, but not in that way. <laughs> the problem with, with being a leader is that you often assume massive burdens in taking care of those under your protection. The wagon train is something like that in that we already talked about earlier in this episode about how dangerous the Oregon Trail was. Collins made this trip multiple times. He knows it's not a cakewalk. It's going to be really rough. So there are a couple of conversations that he has with Kit. The first one, he says, we've got close to 100 strong-willed folks traveling with us. If they stay healthy, most will make it to Oregon, but some of their dreams will be shattered along the way. did let one of them be yours. So he feels responsible for everybody, but I think he feels especially responsible for Kit because he's the reason that she's on the wagon train. He negotiated her going with the Barretts. And uh, her paying for Adam's services along the way. And he sees her personality and he sees how much she wants to take care of herself and how capable she, she thinks she is. I mean, she is very capable, but I think he's in doubt to that at this point in time. He's very smart and sensitive, but he's also a realist and he knows the dangers they'll face. And he wants to make sure that Kit understands that as well. And then, whenever they... It's one of the wagon crossings. And he uh, he talks about how men on this train can take hard work but the thought of putting their families in danger will cause them to question how much risk they're willing to take i think that's kind of a double play on how he's feeling at that point too like he's putting himself in their shoes he knows that he doesn't have as much to lose as these guys and like he feels responsible For every single person on this wagon train, so much like each head of the family is trying to think whether, am I going to make this river crossing? Am I going to choose to take this path? Am I going to choose to go over this hill or are we going to go around it? Each of those choices is made with their families in mind. Cullen makes those decisions with the entire wagon train's well-being in mind. And so I think that was a great way of kind of showing how he processes those things and how he takes on the burden of that responsibility. And he doesn't take it lightly. You needed a man like that when you were crossing the Oregon Trail that wasn't just going to take the shortest route and the most reckless route because that's the shortest distance between point A and point B is a straight line. They could go slower if they wanted to, but they were going to take in all the factors and make the best decision for them. And I think that, that that in particular is when we see the leader side of Cullen come out. So over the course of all of this stuff that's happening with Kit and Cullen, we really see their relationship start forming. And like I said, they have a lot of back and forth, back and forth. Her being dishonest, him being frustrated that she's not being honest. And then once she gets up the courage to be honest, he gets pissed off because it's not what he wanted to hear. He has a very fiery temper And she has a problem with opening herself up to potentially be hurt again. And so this makes for a lot of butting of heads. But when they finally come together, it makes for some really beautiful moments. And I think when Cullen asks Kit to marry him, that is huge. He's not impulsive. Like she is, I think he has a tendency towards like he has a very short fuse. And I think that that might be misconstrued as impulsive, but he's not impulsive. He's very methodic in his decisions. And I think that we see that in how he makes decisions regarding the wagon train. And that scares the hell out of Kit when he asks her to marry him. She never planned on staying in the 19th century. She wanted to go home. I think that him saying that he was willing to go with her, Really throws her for a loop because she can see that he doesn't belong there. But he's like not willing to take no for an answer, which I think is adorable. And he's even contemplating kidnapping her. And then he's like, "Mm, maybe that's not the best idea. Um, The more I think about that, I'm not really liking it as much. So I think that Kit and Cullen, the evolution of their relationship is pretty fantastic. Brenda says mutual respect comes into play for both. Kit is a renaissance woman, intelligent, athletic, artistic. Cullen needed that kind of woman because he was attracted to all the aspects of who Kit is. He had to come to some kind of compromise to the type of woman she is and respect her for it. Her mindset changed, too, to understand that vulnerability is okay. Yeah, I agree. It's a huge part of their coming together because their biggest emotional hurdles for themselves are kind of put to the wayside and they understand that they can be vulnerable, that it's okay to accept women as who they are and not who you want them to be. When we get to when Sarah miscarries her baby or um, not miscarries, but like goes into preterm labor. I feel like this was a really, really intense set of scenes. It shows on the other side of things that it's okay for a, 19th century man to show emotion just like it's okay for a 21st century woman to be tough John is not ashamed of showing his emotion when it comes to his fear for losing Sarah and his distress over losing his baby so I really loved that but then on the other hand we get Kit leaning on Cullen very strongly I made a comment I said it's like her grief was taking every ounce of energy she had and she had nothing left to help herself heal but now she has a partner to help shoulder the burden. And so I feel like she's a better version of herself because she has Cullen to lean on and she's not dealing with everything on her own. And on the other side of things, you can see the exact same thing with Cullen, especially after he falls into the Deschutes and he has all his MREs and his Tylenol and all of that. He doesn't know how any of it works, but he 100% trusts Kit to take care of him even if she's not physically there with him and so that really gets him through one of the most difficult parts of his life because he trusts her implicitly which I think there are only a very few amount of people in his life that he could say that he he has a level of trust like that with so after Cullen falls into the Deschutes which is a massive pivot point in this story and this was I was reading very regularly. I was into the story, but when this happened, I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) And I could not put it down from that point on. This was a huge pivot point. And I think that in a lot of ways, this brings a lot of earlier seeds in the story into relevance. We get Kit's ability to defend herself because... She's a badass. Killing three men with her bare hands is insanity. But the, the irony of it being that the one man that she couldn't save is Cullen. And again, she's thrown right back into that grief spiral of I couldn't save him just like she couldn't save Scott. And I feel like as much as her grief over losing her husband and her soulmate is dominating her emotions, we also see the revival of that grief and blame. So that was a huge pivot point for me. Did you guys reread any passages? And if so, which ones? Because this is the one that I (laughs) reread. Because I just feel like everything's happening so fast in this little bunch of scenes. Another pivot point that we hit pretty, not early on, but kind of like mid-book is when they get to South Pass, finally, and they find the wagon train full of murdered people. It's a continuation of the plot because it's when Kit learns that her father and her mother weren't really killed in the South Pass massacre, that they're still out there. And, oh my God, Bram has seen this guy in this portrait. So it's a complete pivot of the plot moving into that whole section where she's, She's finally on the right track, and she knows somebody who knows this man that she believes is her father and kind of takes the story on a whole other turn to go uh, find her biological family, actually having some sort of answers now. So what are you guys saying about rereading any passages? Barb says, That blew me away, but right before it happened, there was a clue to prepare you. Right before it happened, she saw Cullen the way he appears to her in her visions. I have a whole other section down here about the supernatural elements of this series. It's kind of crazy, actually. But yeah, Kit has a premonition. She has a couple of different premonitions in this series or in this book. But um, this one in particular just screams, (laughs) screams something bad is going to happen. And that's when Kit sees the red glow slashed across Cullen's chest and it's just a flash and it's when they're on their honeymoon I believe she knows that something bad's gonna happen but she doesn't know what it is and then icing on the cake for that is it's followed up with her saying don't ever leave me and he says I'll never leave you (laughs) oh my god okay well that just seals it something's gonna happen to Cullen (laughs) that's what I thought when I was reading that I was like (laughs) okay, <laughs> yes, so, um, definite premonitions going on there for certain, and then from from the point when Cullen falls in, Kit spirals back down into grief, like I said, and I felt like I felt so bad for her because she's worked and worked and worked, and she finally felt some semblance of happiness again, and she finally felt like she found where she belongs. And then she loses that person that means the most to her. We really see some interesting parallels between Kit and Cullen that I think really on a deeper level describe their relationship to one another. When Kit finds out that Cullen has quote unquote died, at least he's he's missing for sure. She says even days after the accident, she goes into the woods in search of a piece of Cullen's shirt or his footprints, just like when he first gets back to the camp and finds out that Kit has gone back to the future, he goes into the woods as well, and he says he finds the sound of Kit's laugh and the music of the forest and the scent of vanilla instead of pine, and that's all before he falls to the ground like Kit and doesn't see the point of getting back up. So they have these strong parallels in their stories, even after they're separated, and that really got me thinking about his ghost And what Bram is saying about when Cullen's ghost appears to Kit, it's because a significant moment is happening in his life, just as a significant moment is happening in Kit's life. And those are the things that kind of bridge the gap between them. So that just kind of is another way that we can see that their souls are connected through space and time and that they really are soulmates. We see that both Kit and Cullen sleep alone in four poster cherry beds and long for one another at different points while they're separated during the story. And then eventually, by the end of the story, they are reunited and sleeping together in a four poster cherry bed at McClenna Farm, which very poetic but by the end of it when they all come back together this really what finalizes cullen's arc and kits is a quote by cullen he says losing everything that had given life meaning had been excruciatingly painful restored to all that he loved was humbling so i feel like yeah it really does give you a whole other appreciation for the things that mean the most to you in your life when you lose them and then you get them back unexpectedly, like you think you're going to have to go the rest of your life without it. And then there it is right in front of you again. It's really amazing. And it's it's a beautiful story for sure. Alrighty, righty. Well, this is running longer than I expected it to, but that's okay. <laughs> so we're going to move on to secondary characters. We have a lot of great secondary characters in this story. And one of the huge themes throughout is the idea of family. Family being one that you create is a thread that's woven throughout the series as a whole, but we can see it start to take shape in this particular story. We see the bond being formed between Kit and Cullen, and them sharing their relationship with Henry, Bram, and the Barretts. Kit is coming from a time in her life when she's completely lost everything. The only thing she had left in the 21st century was Elliot. She's coming to the 19th century, a very broken version of herself. And so when she finds this whole mishmash of people in her life, it really fills a lot of holes inside her, I feel like. Helps glue her broken bits back together. She still has a ginormous hole where her, her parents and Scott were, and that will always be there. But it's in finding all of these beautiful, wonderful people and seeing how much she can care for them and that they care for her that kind of helps her along her healing. Colin, similar story with him. I mean, he's kind of a rogue at this point. He doesn't really have a concrete family. His father lives back east. He has Bram, which is his best friend and his business partner, but hasn't seen him for a long time. They're supposed to be meeting up in California and happen upon each other at Fort Laramie. But this mishmash of people is also very much a family to Cullen. Yet another thing that Kit and Cullen have in common. So the first person that I think is interesting is Henry. He's a he's a very simple character, but he also has some of the most touching moments for me because He kind of stands in for Elliot in a way. He doesn't have a wife or children, but he very much has taken Cullen on as his son and transfers that love and affection over to Kit. There's a moment, I forget what it is, I think it might be after Kit saves the boy from jumping into the Kansas and he says, I don't know if I can go and talk to her without losing his shit And Henry looks at him and says, if you hurt that girl, you're going to have me to answer to. Also, when Henry finds Cullen laying in the mud after he falls off of his horse after he goes searching for Kit, henry's just like giving him this lecture even though he knows Colin is completely out of it and not listening he's like i told you she doesn't want anything to do with you stop going after her blah 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 (laughs) so i really just like that he kind of does have that adoptive godfather air about him and that like i said that transfers over to his affection for kit and i also find it extremely ironic that part of henry's reasoning for not letting Kit go on the wagon train with them in the first place was because Mary Spencer went missing and Mary was originally supposed to be on this wagon train with everybody and he thought that you know she had gone missing that something terrible had happened to her either she'd been murdered or kidnapped or whatever and he held himself responsible for her well-being because she was a woman traveling alone and he didn't want that same thing to happen to Kit well it turns out that Mary Spencer actually is Sean McClendon's soulmate and went back to the 21st century to live with him and raise Kit. So I thought that that was really cool. And I'm glad that Henry got that closure at the end of the day as well. And then after Cullen falls into the river, we really see that he has that same level of grief that Elliot has over losing Kit. So Henry and Elliot are really kind of mirrors for each other in a lot of respects. But also the difference being that Henry has Kit to turn to and to help and to kind of take his mind off his grief and make sure she's taken care of and that she's taking care of herself and the baby. So I think that as much as Henry does that because he knows it's what Cullen would want to make sure the Kit was taken care of, he also does it for himself because he really does care for Kit as a daughter at that point. Connie says, yes, love that connection. We finally understand that later. Yeah. So the Barretts. I've already touched a lot on the Barretts and kind of things that have happened, but much as Henry stands in um, and takes on Elliot's role, the Barretts kind of step in and fill the void that was created by the loss of Kit's parents. She even makes comments that Sarah is very much like her mother was. And so I feel like we kind of do get a feel for why Kit is the way that she is whenever we see Sarah interact with Kit because she's very soft, very faith-based. Catherine even said that Sarah's faith is one thing that really surprised her about the creation of her characters, which I find very interesting. I mean, I guess that Sarah's faith really does kind of get her and her family and also Kit and Colin through a lot of bad stuff. So it's really neat to kind of see that being intertwined with such a... <laughs> Angela said Henry is Collins Elliot. Yes, exactly. Well, Dang it, you distracted me. What was I going to say? Oh, um, why Sarah is important to Kit. I feel like Kit has missed that motherly influence in her life and really needs somebody like that to help her understand her own emotions and help her to move forward and grow from that experience. One of the first conversations that Sarah has with Kit, she makes this comment. She says, if she stayed preoccupied with the questions, she might never discover the answers. Which, par for the course with this story, right? It's not until Kit gives up on the idea of finding her parents at South Pass that she discovers that her parents aren't actually at South Pass They're elsewhere. That actually sends her on the journey to find out that she's Jamelin McClenna and Donald McCabe's daughter. So very prophetic. Sarah is very in tune with the um, supernatural side of her gifts, and I think that that's enhanced by her faith in a lot of ways. But Sarah also comments to Kit that you can mourn that man you lost, but you can't quit living. I think that defines the start of Kit's journey towards learning to love again and opening her heart to other people. Because as Cullen starts to fall for Kit, he's very, not disturbed, but he's kind of at a loss as to what to do because he can feel it happening. He knows that he's getting in deeper and deeper with Kit, despite his intentions being the exact opposite. All he wanted to do was seduce her and have sex with her and move on. And he can feel that this time is different, that Kit is different. But Kit is not interested in developing that kind of a relationship with him. Sarah says to him, loving children is safe. She gives and they give back. But you're like the land we're traveling through, unknown and dangerous. And so Sarah is very much a mother figure, very wise, a very good character for these people to lean on. And so as I continue with the Barrett family, I want to know which member of the Barrett family do you think affects Kit's character arc the most? Because she does have interactions with a lot of different members of the Barrett family. I think that John. I wouldn't say that John steps in as a father figure, but he's definitely like like an uncle, a protector. He looks out for her and makes sure that she stays on the straight and narrow, and that's good. I think John is more of an influence on Cullen. Honestly, he's definitely closer to Cullen. And then Francis. I'm torn between saying that Francis and Sarah have the most impact on Kit's character arc because Sarah is, like, the offerer of sage advice and helping Kit to open up and embrace who she is and move forward with, with her life and accept that she'll always have that hole in her heart of her losses that she suffered, but that she can't let that stop her. And Francis in the literal sense of the word, propels this plot forward. She's the reason Kit goes on this wagon train to begin with, because of her writing about the South Pass Massacre in her journal. When Kit saves Francis from the cholera epidemic, she's the entire reason that Kit ends up telling Cullen where she's from. And, you know, that, that changes a lot of stuff. And then you have Adam, who, in a similar vein, is one of the Barrett children that, kit deals with the most and his injury with the wagon shard is extremely pivotal like kind of crazy how it parallels what kit has been through before and i think that this story and and katherine are very good at representing similar similar situations under completely different circumstances and showing how a character can react differently to both The instance with Adam is a very good example of that because it mirrors what happened with Scott before this story started. Scott was impaled by a piece of fence and suffered internal injuries that killed him. Adam, impaled by a shard off of a wagon, axle, or wheel or something. And Kit is actually able to save him, but it's different because... Kit isn't alone this time when she deals with it. She has Cullen with her. And I think that that shows the growth of Kit's character and that she's opened up and she's letting someone else in. And that's the physical embodiment of Kit having someone to lean on. But it's also showing that there's nothing that Kit really could have done to save Scott because she was in a terrible situation. She didn't have the supplies and the help that she needed to save him. So I think that in a couple of different ways, that experience with Adam was was kind of cleansing. Elliot is my next topic. And I could probably do a whole podcast on Elliot. I'm not gonna lie. He's a really deep character. <laughs> and I think I think that he's one of those characters that Diana Gabaldon would describe as a mushroom. He kind of initially was just there and then just kind of keeps expanding into the universe. <laughs> um, gets more and more complex as the series goes. And that's one thing that I love so much about him, especially when you get into the next book. If, if you want to join me for my talk on The Last MacLenna here in a month and a half, two months don't have a firm date on that yet. But he's critical to this story, um, not just to Kit, but to the series as a whole. And he's, he was really Kit's rock during the toughest moments of her life and vice versa for him. I mean, Elliot doesn't have a lot of people. He's a serial dater. I think he's been through like every woman on the Lexington scene at this point. And Kit and the McClinnas are his constant And he really views Kit as his daughter, the daughter that he never had in a lot of ways and dotes on her. He's himself with her in a way that I think he probably only is with Sean. And then when Sean dies, it's him and Kit versus the world. And they really rely on each other. A lot of those reasons. And so when he loses Kit, it's a voluntary loss he knows it's going to happen. She knows it's going to happen. But it's something that he knows about in advance. And I think it's one of the hardest things that he'll ever face. Maybe not the hardest thing, knowing, the, knowing some of the stuff that happens later on. But it's definitely one of the hardest things he'll ever face. And probably the hardest thing that he's faced up to this point for his character. I felt so awful for him. I can't imagine that kind of pain it's just beyond bearing. That's the one thing that about this book that brings me to tears when they're saying goodbye and Elliot says dinago really softly, like just whispers it. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> Kit, why are you beating up on Elliot? Stop it. <laughs> I don't care if you want to be with your soulmate. Don't be like that. <laughs> oh man, it's so tragic. And Catherine said that after writing, That, like writing how Elliot has to say goodbye and how this book ends and everything. That's when she really decided that she felt so bad for him that she had to like write his story. And so initially she only had plans for the ruby brooch, the sapphire brooch and the emerald brooch. And then obviously after this happened with Elliot, she just had to had to write something for him. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what happens in case you haven't read the second book, but go read the second book. So yes, I'm so glad she did because I too also felt completely terrible for Elliot and I, I needed to know what happened with him. I think that the last chapter of this book in particular creates a really nice bridge for what happens in book two. There are also really nice connecting points for what happens in book three. So I can see how It was so tempting. Like, which one do you write? Which one do you pick? Do you go with Elliot or do you go with Bram? (laughs) Which one? I can see how it was initially just supposed to be the Sapphire brooch. And then it ended up being the last McClennah. And then let's talk about Bram. I think Bram is one of my favorite, favorite characters in the Celtic brooch series. So I asked... Catherine I said um, Bram is a very vibrant character he's personally one of my favorites was he always part of the plan or did he sort of blossom into the character we see on the page and she says Bram was always going to be included but he evolved into a central character in the series and that was a surprise she also gave me a little bit of information which I thought was interesting in that Bram's initial name was Cody and Cullen's initial name was Colt in the books, and I love both of those names, but honestly, there's something so evocative of, like, where they come from in the names of Bram and Cullen. I really love the choices that she ended up with. Anyway, so Cullen and Bram, they've always been, they've been lifelong friends, and Kit describes them as bookends, and I think that When she says bookends, she really does mean, appearance-wise, they are, like, opposite. Like, they look the same. They're both tall and handsome and Scotsman. But one of them is light hair, light-colored or fair complexion or whatever you want to call it. And one is, like, tall, dark, and handsome. So they're very similar in personality, kind of. Um, I think that Bram is just different enough that he pushes Cullen. I think that's one of the reasons that Kit and Bram get along so well. I mean, yes, genetically, they're cousins, and that makes a load of sense as to why their personalities are so similar. But I think Bram is a lot more free-spirited than Cullen is. Cullen is very by-the-book. Bram is more a follow-your-heart guy. doesn't mean that Bram is not completely amazing and intelligent and he's a hell of a lawyer but he also believes in the emotional side he believes in thinking outside of the box a little bit more and i think that's why bram is so immediately accepting of kit knowing how much of a pain in the ass cullen perceives her as when they first meet bram and cullen's relationship is one of my favorites of the series so real and honest and we can come back to it time and again and it's like a warm hug when we do because every time we come back to seeing them together, they just have a dynamic together that they don't have with any other character. And I feel like that's kind of the hallmark of a best friend relationship. You just can be honest in yourself with that person in a way that you can't be honest in yourself with any other person. I think that when it comes to Colin, the only other person that he can kind of be that person with is Kit. But... It's still very different. It's like bro's relationship versus love or marriage, you know? You're still yourself with your spouse, but you're not the same version of yourself that you are with your best friend. I loved, loved, loved... Like, this was the moment when Bram completely won won me over. When Cullen was telling Bram what happened between... Kit and Cullen when he found out that Kit had condoms and he freaked out because the only other person he's known to have condoms is a prostitute. And so he was like, oh my God, you know, red flashing lights, get away, get away. (laughs) When in fact, that's not really why Kit had condoms, but you know, it is whatever. And I love that Bram calls him out on it. And he says, you acted like an arse. What the hell's the matter with you? She should have shot you or cut off your bollocks. (laughs) Bram is literally the the physical embodiment of the internal voice in Cullen's head. He's literally just says everything that Cullen's beating himself up about internally, and I just find that phenomenal. I really, really like that about um, their best friend dynamic, and I think that it's not really something that we get, again, in the series in that same way, so I really just... I so appreciate their dynamic so much. Bram is also a graduate of Harvard Law, so like I said, extremely intelligent, but we see the differences in how he and Cullen think and perceive things and how they handle Kit's disappearance back into the future. Cullen's instinct is to go to McLenna Farm and try to physically find whatever connection he can to her and try to figure things out and solve the puzzle that way. Bram's idea versus making this insane trek to Kentucky, he's going to draw on his social connections and call in some favors and rely on his his intelligence to do the work for him, whereas Cullen is much more of like a physical being in that respect. So Bram writes this letter to Kit, and then he calls on William Sherman to see if he can talk him into doing him a favor and letting this letter sit in the vault until 2012. So we're seeing a lot of seeds laid for where Bram's story goes in the Sapphire brooch. And that's all I'll say about that. But I think that it we're already very invested in Bram's character by the end of the Ruby brooch. So I feel like that was a good choice. A good stepping stone. Because Bram is more of a free-spirited, follow-your-heart individual, I also feel like he's more in tune with his instincts. He really has this almost premonition-like feeling that, like, grips him while he's on the trail when he's thinking about leaving. And, he sa- and it says, no, you can't leave because something might happen. What if something happens? And then you're always going to blame yourself. Well, then something happens. And so he feels an immense sense of guilt for Cullen falling into the Deschutes and everything that happened. Because he knows if he'd have stayed, that might not have happened. Between Cullen, Bram, and Kit, they probably could have taken out these wagon train murderers. And so he feels a lot of guilt for that and loyalty towards Kit and Cullen. And so I think all of that combined... Drives him to make these decisions and put himself on the line. And this is kind of a defining moment for Bram's character in that he's willing to put himself on the line to protect and defend and do whatever he can do for those that he loves. It may even result in the loss of his life, but that's a sacrifice that he's willing to make because he's protecting those that he cares about or he's helping them in some way. And so. Bram knows because of all of what Kit told him about the future that he's going to become entangled with the Civil War, with William Tecumseh Sherman and Abraham Lincoln, and being on special assignment to the president and being a cavalry officer. These are all things that Bram sees coming. We don't quite know when Kit is first telling him about it how it's going to happen, but then. As we see the choices that Bram makes, he can see it coming down the pipe, and he's like, well, we got to run at it, basically, because I have to do these things. He feels obligated. He can't just sit back and watch it happen, and that's just the kind of person that Bram is. So I find it very fascinating that we're like, literally, we can see it looming in the distance, and it seems like every step that Bram takes is like, oh, of course, this is the natural step that he would take to get to the end point that we know he's going to be at. All right. All right we're coming towards the end, kind of. (laughs) So we're going to talk a little bit more about writing style. So Catherine doesn't use, she says she doesn't use an outline whenever she writes, which I don't either. I don't know how people plot out an entire story and then work it through an outline. And then, yeah, I don't know how. I write the same way that a lot of my favorite authors do, I found in that you write it as you see it in your head and then you're kind of surprised where it takes you, which and this was kind of what I found interesting. I thought it was possible that she might work with an outline because of all of the full circle moments that come into effect in this story. So I was kind of surprised when she said that she just she just writes it and that any seeds that are planted in advance are just pure happenstance and that a lot of times there's no payoff to those seeds until several books later. But she doesn't intentionally put things in, which I th- find fascinating. So the first full circle moment, like I said, was um, Mary McClenna being a time traveler from Independence, Missouri, which that was freaking nuts. Second one that we planted was the Thomas McClenna's journal that Sandy is going through at the very beginning of the book. It's the end of the morning period and all the black sheets are coming off of the paintings and all of that. And we're wondering, where on earth did all of this stuff come from? Like, why why is this happening? I don't understand. This is kind of odd, odd family traditions. And we get the first mention of the grandson born on the, the 40th day or something like that. So we've got all of this happening. And then at the end of the book, we find out who actually wrote the journal, why they wrote the journal, And it's just so poetic that we actually are living with the characters, the actual experiences that inspired that journal that generations later is still being used as an outline for procedures within the family. So I found that fascinating. Also, probably one of the key full circle moments is the second premonition, or technically the first if we're going in order, that Kit has of Cullen helping Sean pick out Thomas's gravesite. Because that's kind of where this story takes place, like starts out. It's our jumping off point. And to kind of know everything that happens in retrospect that leads up to Cullen being at McLenna Farm to help pick out that gravesite is just insane. And not to mention the fact that Kit having that premonition and telling Cullen about it is the whole reason that he goes to McLenna farm in the first place. Like he never would have thought to do that. I don't think if Kit hadn't told him that she had a vision of him being there to help select this gravestone and that he knew the date and knew that he had to hurry up and get there for whatever reason. Um, It's just this perfect storm of events that really settle to create this story that we have at the end. And I felt that in the nature of that full circle moment of we're starting out with the vision of Kit watching Cullen help pick out the grave to where we end up at the end with Thomas's funeral and the birth of Kit and Cullen's son. There's a a song, an old shaker hymn that is referenced in this book that I felt was absolutely apropos for this this whole story and um, it's called simple gifts and it says tis the gift to be simple tis the gift to be free tis the gift to come down where we ought to be and when we find ourselves in the place just right we'll be in the valley of love and delight when true simplicity is gained to bow and to bend we shan't be ashamed to turn turn will be our delight till by turning turning we come round right So it's all about the journey, like, oh, I've got goosebumps reading it. It's all about the journey that we take to end up where we are and trusting that those steps that we take in our lives are all for a reason and that we will end up where we're supposed to be, which is the whole point of this story, I guess, is acceptance of a bigger plan, a bigger picture. So I really loved that. A little bit about the brooch lore, because I know that there's some like confusion and it's constantly building on it as we go farther and further. A couple of things that we know, I'm not going to get deep into it because we don't really know too much about it at this point in time. We know that the brooch takes you where you need to be when you need to be there and for its own reasons and that it connects soulmates. When Kit and Cullen are talking about potentially taking Sarah back to the future to maybe save her baby, Kit looks at him and says, honestly, if I took her back to the future, they probably couldn't save the baby anyway. And to be honest, I'm not sure that the brooch is a revolving door. Like they very much get the vibe that it's there to serve a purpose. And if you're not serving that purpose, then it's not going to take you where you want to go. It's going to take you where you need to go. And so Colin says, the time might come last when you'll need to test its magic, but you're right. The stone will do what it's meant to do. Nay more, nay less. We can trust that every time a character uses the brooch and goes through time, they are furthering the brooch's mission, so to speak. And we know that the brooch exists simply to bring soulmates together in some way, shape, or form. And the MacLennan family lore that's been passed down from, through the generations is that the stone will take you to a world unknown through amber light to a time not your own, to the one of your heart and the truth you'll be shown. So that's what we know about the brooches. Cullen's ghost was a bit of a... Conundrum for me at first. I was really trying to figure out what the heck was going on. I had so many tabs in my book initially that were like, here's the ghost again, here's the ghost again, here's the ghost again. (laughs) Really trying to figure it out. And at the beginning, I was wondering at what point in Cullen's life this ghost is pulling from because Kit says that when she first meets Cullen in independence, he doesn't really. Resemble her ghost. Like they kind of look like the same person, but she's not quite sure if they're the same person because they look different. Like her ghost just looks worn out and kind of skinnier and just haggard almost at some points. So I thought maybe on a second read, I was like, okay, so maybe when he's like in between after he crawls ashore, after he falls into the Deschutes, maybe that's when his ghost ghost to her so basically where I I settle down on this it is after Cullen falls into the the dischutes. but I think honestly I don't know I'm so torn so I think Cullen's ghost appears to have a link somehow between the two timelines like I said earlier and that their spirits come together when they are sharing a experience of some sort or significant events are happening between the two. I think that that is Cullen's way of keeping them connected through space and time is by being there with her. I think also that Cullen haunts, quote unquote haunts. I feel like that word has such a negative connotation because he's really like going back to be with his loved ones and she never really feels afraid or scared of him, um, even when she's young, like little and she first starts seeing him. So Cullen goes back to Kit to, I don't know, like almost draw her back to McLenna Farm. So that was Cullen's Spirit's way, I guess, of letting Kit know that he made it to McLenna Farm and that he's there waiting on her if she chooses to come back. And I find that so interesting. I think it kind of takes the idea of a ghost and kind of plays with it a little bit because you think of a ghost as like someone's presence after they die. But this is almost like Cullen's spirit moving through time almost to pull Kit to him, which is kind of cool. Connie says she was confused by the ghost too and wondered if it was him or Bram. It was definitely him for sure. And Brenda says ghost loved how kit cullen and bram sat around connecting their life to the ghost's appearances yeah that was really cool i liked that a couple of cool symbolism moments that i found most towards the end but the really cool one that i saw so cullen associates vanilla with the scent of kit for most of the book every time we in Cullen's point of view, and he talks about Kit and being drawn to her. He talks about the intoxicating, seductive scent of vanilla, which actually is like when you look up vanilla and symbolism, you find that it is. It's like seduction, and it's a tantalizing scent. But when I think of vanilla, I think almost of innocence. Like when I first started wearing perfume as a little girl... I was always given vanilla scented stuff because it didn't have as much of a punch and it was more of an innocent scent, I guess, than some of these intoxicating, like alluring, sexy smells, I guess. (laughs) Brenda thinks vanilla stinks. I love the scent of vanilla. Oh, man. Cullen associates that scent with Kit, which I find extremely interesting because when he first meets Kit... She really does have innocence in a lot of way. And she is a seductive presence for him. But she hasn't known love on the level that she knows love with Cullen after this story is said and done. And so I think it's interesting that he smells vanilla and he associates vanilla with her. And he even mentions like missing the scent of vanilla and like finding whispers of the scent of vanilla in the woods after he finds out that she's gone missing. But also, whenever Cullen appears at McClenna Farm, and Kit is already back, but he doesn't know that, he walks in and he says he expected to smell the scent of lemon polish because that's what Kit always said she smelled whenever she walked in. But instead, he says he smells roses. I thought that was extremely interesting that something has happened to change the way that that she smells to him. And so I looked it up, and roses symbolize romance, love, beauty, and courage. I mean, think about how much courage it would take to go back to the 19th century, having been there already once, not knowing if Cullen is really going to show up, and, not, and knowing that the brooch is not a revolving door, that she may be stuck even if her and Cullen never find each other again. That takes a lot of courage. So I found it interesting that Kit sent changes from vanilla, which symbolizes love sensuality seduction peace dreams and luck to roses which symbolize romance love beauty and courage then at the end of the story um cullen gives kit a thornless rose and i was like well what's the point of taking all the thorns off i mean kit says that cullen in a way has removed all of her her thorns all the things that are like sticking points for her and that he's basically broken down all of her walls and made her the most beautiful version of herself. The Thornless Rose and giving her a rose at the end of the book also calls back to another quote that we got at the beginning of the story, which was a quote by Anis Nin. Anis Nin. Um, it says, And the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. And Kit says whenever she's looking at this rose, that she had truly bloomed into the power of Cullen's love. And I thought that that was interesting, that that quote by Anis Nin is really a symbol for Kit and who she is. And she thinks, and whenever we read it at first, that it's all about taking risks and jumping into the unknown to go find who she is. But in reality, it's talking about, in reference to the story, the power of love and how she can't be afraid to break down her walls anymore. And that in breaking down those walls and learning to love, she's really found the greatest gift of all. Okay, one more thing. And I'll ask this question right now so you guys have time to put it on the board. I know that I'm losing some people because I've been on here for a long time now. What was your favorite part of this book? I'm curious. So let me know in the comments while I talk about this last little thing. And then I'll let you know what my favorite part was. Okay, so one of the biggest themes in this book... And I really, really found it very emotional for me, mainly because I've struggled with this theme myself, is forgiveness. I think the overwhelming theme in this book is learning to cope with grief and loss. But the more powerful of the two, I think, because it's not so front and center, is forgiveness. And learning to understand why people make the decisions that they make and Learn to accept that about them and be okay with it, I think, is the key to forgiveness. Or maybe not even learn to be okay with it, but just understand that it's not something that you're going to ever agree on. I think where we start to see this kind of come through is when the whole thing with Bram debating whether he's going to tell Cullen about Abigail. He's talking to Kit about it, and this is where we kind of get him, like, asking... (laughs) Asking for permission to be dishonest, I guess. And uh, she says to him, secrets are dangerous, Mr. McCabe. When they concern the lives of the people you love, you don't have a choice. You protect them and you live with the consequences. Which is basically reinforcing Bram's thoughts on it, but also says a lot about where Kit is emotionally and on her journey to forgiveness. Because she was so angry at the beginning of this book when she learned that her parents had lied to her and told her that she was their biological child when she really wasn't. So she was really angry with them and she was angry at Elliot for not telling her and not being honest with her. But by saying this to Bram, you can really start to see her making her peace with her father's decision to not tell her about her true parentage because she realized that She probably, especially when she was younger, couldn't have understood and that he really was just trying to protect her and that, you know, damn the torpedoes. He was going to live with it because he felt like he he was doing what he could to protect her and he was living with the consequences. So I feel like that was our first inkling that she was beginning to make peace with her parents' decision. And the second one is when Thomas forgives Donald for walking out on him all those years ago i think when when donald found out that Jamelin had died a piece of him kind of broke not necessarily i mean yeah he loved Jamelin and they were they were this epic kind of love but also the fact that he had lost his daughter as well in this shipwreck so he kind of snapped i think he wasn't completely stable and he killed this guy we don't ever really get the full story behind it, but he he killed this guy. And so he ran. He didn't think that that was ever going to be a forgivable action, especially by Thomas, who he viewed as this, like, all-powerful, really hard exterior, black and white, right and wrong guy. And when we come back to the end of it, Thomas does forgive Donald. And I think that perhaps Donald's perception of Thomas was correct in Thomas's earlier years. But as Thomas progresses in his illness and kind of learns that maybe the way that he has always done things isn't always the best way to move forward and that forgiveness really is key. I think he really did love Donald as a son, and I'm sure it really did hurt to not have that relationship in his life anymore because Thomas probably, you know, he was grieving for the loss of his daughter and his granddaughter, but also for the loss of a son in a lot of ways. I think that that shocked Donald, that Thomas was so willing to forgive. But I feel like this is also kind of opening up the world and showing that in a complete other side to forgiveness. Like, on one hand, with Kit, you've got the journey to forgiveness. And then on the other hand, you've got the world that opens up to you once you give forgiveness to somebody. It's a very freeing experience to forgive yourself, to forgive others. And When Donald realizes that he's forgiven, he can finally forgive himself for those actions and see what's in front of him, which is his daughter, his grown daughter, pregnant with his grandchild, and that he can have a relationship with these people um, and have a family again after being on his own for so long, which I just, I find exquisite, exquisite work. Okay, so what was my favorite part of the book? What was your guys' favorite part of the book? Connie says, when Kit goes back the second time and meets her family and is eventually reunited with Cullen, she's finally at peace. Everything after Kit kills the three wagon train killers. So all the Deschutes stuff that and all the grief stuff. That's crazy. Their wedding day. Kit's exchanges with Sarah and Henry. Yes. I saw a comment on here, unless somebody deleted it. But um, somebody said that the uh, birthing of the babies was hilarious. Kit going into labor is my favorite scene of the whole book because it is freaking hilarious all of the guys reactions cullen having a list of stuff to do and yelling for the manual and donald and bram are like i don't have it no he has it i don't have it and then they're like it's okay we watched the birthing videos on the itube on the upod contraption (laughs) contraption (laughs) and kit's like did i just fall into a really bad sitcom I just laughed my behind off, or listening to that scene. I feel like that is a particularly fantastic scene in the audiobook, hearing the conversation. It's so great. But also, the entire 23rd chapter was fantastic for me. It's on the heels of the cholera outbreak. It's when Kit comes clean to Cullen about Wayne attacking her and the car accident that killed her parents and Scott. It's also their first intimate scene together and has the heartbreaking scene of Kit leaving Cullen and telling him she's going back to the the future. So lots of pivotal things that are happening in the relationship between Kit and Cullen. A very amazingly well-written chapter. It was beautiful and I loved it and I felt like it was icing on the cake. All right, so questions for you. If you could ask the author anything, what would it be? And are there any lingering questions about the book that you're still thinking about after this three hours (laughs) of discussing this book? Is there anything that I did not touch on that you guys really would like to hear my opinion on or would like me to ask Catherine about or yes, any of that? Connie says, yes, that was a good scene. I imagine listening to that would be hysterical present day leaks in. Yeah, oh my God. I mean, I love bram and cullen together anyway but then you throw bram and cullen and kit together and kit going into labor (laughs) i can just imagine the utter panic with cullen being such a control freak (laughs) oh man it was hilarious all righty guys well this has been the first edition of droughtlander book club Considering this ran so long, I will probably start dividing these book clubs into two parts and doing the first half on one week and the second half on another week. Just to kind of prevent these two and a half, three hour meetings. Because I know that's a lot of time to set aside to listen to somebody talk about a book. Next week, July 2nd at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, Angela's coming back for part two of our King of Men special. We're going to talk about uh, Jamie Fraser. Everything from his time at Hellwater until present time in the show. We're not going to really try to discuss too much in the books. There might be some book material, but nothing spoilery. So that's next week. And then after that, I'm taking a week off. And then I will get into my season six stuff. So I'm really excited to talk about that. Hopefully you guys will join us for our discussion of Jamie Fraser in the later years. We covered the early years last week or two weeks ago. So like I said, hope you'll join us. It's been fun chatting with you guys today. And um, I hope you'll join me for my next one when we talk about The Last McClennah. I will make sure to post about all of that whenever I get a firm date set. I'm, try- I'm going to try to give you guys at least a month's heads up because I know you have to read a whole book. So I'll try to be very lenient about that as well. All right, guys, thanks for joining me. You guys have a good week and I'll chat to you next week. Bye.